0: What are the strategic considerations behind America's military operations in Syria, allegedly against the Islamic State? Can boots on the ground be avoided? Where is support for ISIL coming from? Where does the beleaguered Kurdish village of Kobani fit into the picture, and what does its takeover by ISIL tell us about U.S. coalition war aims? Is there an ulterior agenda to America's bombing campaign? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we'll hear from visiting professor and former chief of staff under Colin Powell, Lawrence Wilkerson, and from author and geopolitical analyst Madi Nazamroya about concerns they have with the current military strategy being employed in Syria. And later, independent journalist Julie Levesque will update us on some of the more pertinent articles posted on global research addressing the ISIL crisis. On today's program, Dissecting Operation Inherent Resolve, conversations with Lawrence Wilkerson and Madi Nazamroya. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 17th, 2014. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website. Website globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. There is little wonder why the Ebola outbreak caught the WHO so flat-footed as they spent months making mealy-mouthed statements but never coordinating an effective response. The Gates Foundation is the WHO boss, not governments, and if they weren't demanding action, then the desperate people affected by Ebola weren't going to get any. Privatization of public resources is a worldwide scourge. Education, pensions, water, and transportation are being taken out of the hands of the public and given to rich people and corporations. The Ebola crisis is symptomatic of so many off others which go unaddressed or improperly addressed because no one wants to bite the hands that do the feeding. That's from the article Privatized Ebola. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the World Health Organization's boss, not governments. By Margaret Kimberly posted October 15th, originally appearing at Black Agenda Report. While we cannot be sure, there are now compelling and formal probabilistic reasons to believe that at least certain features of the U.S. government MSM-Axis Ebola narrative are fraudulent. The first feature concerns the apparent fact that Dr. Kent Brantley shares the same blood type. For purposes of plants uh, transfusion with three U.S. citizens purportedly stricken with Ebola who are tightly connected with U.S. soil Dr. Nick Sacra, NBC cameraman Ashoka Mukpo, and nurse Nina Pham. On this first feature, we are going to do something that enumerate propagandist. Axis MSM mouthpieces unwilling and in most cases unable to do, which is compute the probability that Brantley's blood type matched for plasma transfusion purposes the blood type of Sacra, Mukpo, and fam The second suspect feature of the MSM Ebola narrative surrounds the FAM Ebola case in particular. While it may sound bombastic, the brute fact is that right now, again, on formal probabilistic grounds, but this time together with contextual evidence, there is very little reason to believe that FAM, in fact, contracted Ebola. That's from the article, Ebola in the United States, the Probability of Fraud, by Professor Jason Kissner, posted October 16th. The only chemical weapons U.S. forces found in Iraq between 2004 and 2011 were designed in the United States and manufactured in Europe, according to a new revealing report. American and Iraqi troops found and in multiple cases were injured by aged and degraded stockpiles of chemical weapons in Iraq, a New York Times investigation published late Tuesday has found. However, the report said the U.S. withheld information about the discoveries as those weapons were manufactured in the 1980s when the U.S. and its allies were actively supplying chemical agents to Saddam Hussein's regime during the Iraq-Iran war. The administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush insisted that Iraq had a clandestine chemical weapons program in defiance of international law, a claim employed to justify the 2003 invasion of the oil-rich Middle Eastern country. The investigation also said that some of those U.S.-manufactured chemical weapons were now likely in the hands of ISIL terrorists. That's from the article, U.S. Found Its Own Chemical Weapons in Iraq by Press-TV. Posted October 15. Power brokers in the West are so maniacally obsessed with controlling the Ukraine, they can't imagine that Russia doesn't want the same thing. But Russia doesn't want the Ukraine. It has no need for a broken, dysfunctional, failed state with massive social problems that will require billions upon billions of dollars to rebuild. Russia already got what it wanted, Crimea. As for the rest, Moscow's attitude is... You broke it, you own it. That's from the article, The Ukraine As We Know It Is Gone Forever, an interview with The Saker by Mike Whitney, posted October 15th, originally appearing in Counterpunch. (music) Seventy years ago, our nations joined forces to defeat the criminal ideology of hatred for humanity, which threatened the very existence of our civilization. And today, it's also important that people in different countries and on different continents remember what terrible consequences may result from the belief in one's exceptionality, attempt to achieve dubious geopolitical goals no matter by what means, and disregard for basic norms of law and morality. Regrettably, in some European countries, the Nazi virus vaccine created at the Nuremberg Tribunal is losing its effect. This is clearly demonstrated by open manifestations of neo-Nazism that have already become commonplace in Latvia and other Baltic states. The situation in Ukraine, where nationalists and other radical groups provoked an anti-constitutional coup d'etat in February, causes particular concern in this respect. Those were comments from Russian President Vladimir Putin in conversation with the Serbian newspaper Politika, printed in the article... Putin-Nazi Virus Vaccine Losing Effect in Europe, posted October 16th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. As militants from the Islamic State advance on strategic positions in Syria and Iraq, including the Kurdish village of Kobani, U.S. military officials have named the campaign to contain them. Operation Inherent Resolve encompasses all military actions taken against ISIL since the first airstrikes were conducted in Iraq two months ago. In this hour, we'll be talking to two analysts with two different perspectives on the strategies and aims of the offensive. Lawrence Wilkerson and Madi Nazem Roya. On October 10th, Lawrence Wilkerson came to Winnipeg, Canada and spoke to a class at the University of Winnipeg on ISIS and the Middle East. Lawrence Wilkerson is currently visiting professor at William & Mary College in Williamsburg, Virginia. After a 31-year career in the U.S. Army, Wilkerson began work in the State Department in 2001. He was Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff from 2002 to 2005. It was Wilkerson who prepared Colin Powell to deliver the speech to the United Nations on Saddam Hussein's Weapons of mass destruction capacity, an episode of his life for which he has expressed regret. Global Research NewsHour correspondent John Wilson approached the retired colonel after his speech and got him to elaborate on his main theme about the failures of the strategy being employed by his country and its allies.
1: And I just wanted to, uh, you know, talk a bit about, um, you know, one of the biggest uh, stories around the world and, and kind of an emerging. A threat as it's seen to you know western society at least that's how it's uh, you know being seen in the media is uh, is the isis and ISIL and kind of these um uh, mutations of al-qaeda people might call them and um and what do you what do you think of this as like a threat to you know the united states and canada and, and western society
2: I think it's a threat, but I don't think it's the threat that hyperbolic statements from capitals in the West have tried to make it seem, so that they could, they could garner political support from their own people. Um, that said, um, I think the threat is more in the region than it is to our own people in our own countries. Um, why, though? That's the question. Why are they there, and why are they sure. successful? Yeah. The reason is not so much the Islamic State, which is nothing more than al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, under Abu Abu Masab al-Zarqawi, now under al-Baghdadi. It's the Sunnis that give it weight in Iraq, the Sunnis who are disenchanted and displeased with Nouri al-Maliki's policies for more than three years of murdering them, imprisoning them, and not allowing them any political power. So in order to handle the problem, manage the problem in Iraq, the first thing we've got to do is have a leadership that convinces the Sunnis that they will be able to share power. And then that will get the Sunnis away from the Islamic State forces, and they will no longer be a problem in Iraq. Do airstrikes do that? No, but they might help as the indigenous Iraqi forces get their act together and then eliminate the potential for further territorial gain on the ground. But the more important thing I must emphasize, the more important thing is to pull the Sunnis away from them by making them think believe, not think believe, and being honest about that and following up with action that they will be included in the government in baghdad
1: what do you Where do you think the um, kind of the funding for these kind of groups is coming from like where Where are they getting their their resources?
2: Some of it is coming from black market oil, which is coming to them from various sources, and they're able to make, I'm told, about a million dollars a day off of that. That's considerable. But a lot of it came initially, and I think the flow is still going as I speak, from Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, maybe from Qatar and other places where there is this objective of Sunni rule throughout the region. And when you have Shias ruling in Damascus and Shias ruling in Iran and Shias now ruling in Iraq – then they don't like that. So they're trying to replace that rule with Sunni rule. So in that sense, it's sectarian. I think the Saudis, for example, are playing a double game, as they always do. They, they'll put their money on several horses, several strategies, if you will, until one seems to be the one that's going to win, and they'll shift all their money to that strategy. Joe Biden, vice president of the United States, was not being untruthful when he s- sort of said this the other day and then had to backtrack. I suspect that was all orchestrated. I suspect the president said, "Go out and say this, so the Saudis will hear it from a public figure, um, but then we'll we'll apologize afterwards, you know, because we need them as allies and so forth." Um, I, that's very sophisticated foreign policy. So, mm-hmm. but I still attribute it to them because I think that's probably what they did. Um, and we do, for the time being at least, need the Gulf Cooperation Council, led by the Saudis, on our side as we do this. Just as we need the Canadians and others who are interested in you know, doing something about this. But I don't think we need to put ground forces in there again because that would be a mistake—very dangerous mistake, I think.
1: Um, one of the images that is is being used a lot to kind of get people riled up is is the beheadings that have happened. Yeah, you know, kind of. What what do you take on on this kind of strategy and like obviously you know in that region people have been doing beheadings you know com- it's Saudis common, do it all the time it's, it's very common so so the fact that that uh, you know we're being shown these to you know to shock us it's kind of like well yeah exactly why why don't we see Saudi beheadings in the news ever
2: yeah you know? it's a little nine eleven. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's a little nine eleven. They 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 figured out. They know they're sophisticated. I think. I'm Anil in particular is sophisticated. Very mm-hmm. brilliant man. They know that when we do, they do something like this. They come closer to sucking America back into the region and others too. Mm-hmm. But their principal target, I think, is the United States. Um, so. Let's do this. Let's do it repeatedly. Let's get Americans all energized again and then their president will have to act and you know, they'll send forces back into the region. Well, Mm -hmm. right now we've only sent air power back into the region and I think that's wise, but it needs to be accompanied by in Iraq, native forces, indigenous forces coming in on the ground and being successful against the Sunnis, and the Islamic State, and that political solution I talked about ultimately. Mm -hmm. In Syria, it's a much more difficult problem, much more difficult problem, complicated by Turkey. Turkey, who right now is sitting on its border in in tanks and other formations, watching Kobani, uh, a largely Kurdish town, Mm -hmm. being demolished by the Islamic State forces and loving it, Essentially, because they're eliminating their own threat, the Kurds, at the same time, they are building their capability to eventually eliminate Assad, both objectives of Ankara. What we've got to do with the Turks is convince them that their policies with regard to NATO and with regard to um, what I would call the West are more powerful, should motivate them more than this localized policy of dealing with the Kurds and then ultimately Assad. Those things can be dealt with, and they can be dealt with with Turkish input over time. But right now, we need to eliminate the forces inside Syria that are causing all the problem, not the least of which is the greatest refugee problem since World War II. Mm -hmm. We're destabilizing Lebanon, perhaps Jordan, and eventually perhaps other countries because of this huge refugee problem. I was recently told by one of the royal family in Jordan, for example, when I was in Italy and happened to encounter him that he essentially put it this way. He said, do you know there's a refugee family in every Jordanian home? Well, that's really generous of the Jordanians, but how long can that last and how long can it keep from destabilizing Jordan? So this is a huge problem, and incidentally, it's not a problem that the West is doing a whole lot to help right now. Mm-hmm. It needs to do more.
1: Do you think uh, kind of the destabilization in, in the region is um, – would you attribute some of it to, to oil interests and, and kind of, you know, uh, people benefiting from, from the instability being able to, you know, look at, uh, you know, the resources that are available there?
2: I don't think you can ever get out of the oil business when you're talking about this region since mm-hmm. anywhere from a quarter to a third of the world's known reserves are there, particularly now that we understand Iraq may have 300 billion, maybe even 400 billion barrels of oil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, other than what I said about selling black market oil and getting a million dollars a day, that oil is playing a huge part in this other than a motivation for the West to make sure the region's stable so that oil can flow at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting question you ask because right now oil is dropping. The price of oil is dropping largely, people say, because of U.S. production, which is now my 9 million barrels per day and really big and competing even with Saudi Arabia and others. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as that price drops, and as Russia's plans for the future based on 112 to 117 dollars per barrel of benchmark, Saudi Arabia's plans for the future based on anywhere between 92 and 103 per barrel or so get majorly changed because oil now dropped for the first time in some time below 100, and it looks like it's headed down further that's going to perturbate everybody's interest in the region and whether or not they line up on one side or the other side. So it's going to be fascinating to watch this in some ways, and it's going to be dangerous in other ways as this backdrop of national need for oil, economic need for oil, infuses itself in what is basically a struggle between Sunnis and Shias and radical jihadists in the West.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, like, the combination of yeah, resource interests, but then like humanitarian interests and, and, you know, kind of that idea of doing the, the best for, for humanity or even, you know, and, and climate change doesn't seem to really factor into this. Yeah. Imagine what like, you could
2: do with that million dollars a day that ISIS forces are making mm-hmm. off black market oil if you applied it towards the humanitarian problem. Mm-hmm. A million dollars a day, it'd go a long way to helping. Yeah. you know, And yet it's being used to buy arms and kill people. Mm-hmm. And to slip people's throats and so forth and so on, and to invest cities like Kobani uh, with mortars and bombs, and you know it's crazy. It really is. You're you just mm-hmm. ask the fundamental mm-hmm. question. It's yeah. crazy. It's absolutely yeah. crazy.
1: Yeah. Do you do you think there is some overlap? Like I, I, you know, heard how in in Syria, some of like the, the rebels that were fighting Syrian army, there's overlap with with ISIS, and like you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to see who's fighting for who in which country. And I, I'm guessing that's because of you know kind of the desperation of the people, and they'll kind of go towards. Um, no
2: question, it's a very confused situation in Syria. Uh, if if people want to see how confused it is and hear it from the mouth of an administration official, at least former one, I'd recommend the interview that occurred last night, at least on my TV in the in the hotel in the, here in Winnipeg between one of our best interviewers, Charlie Rose and the former head of the National Counterterrorism Center for the United States, in, in which he described very eloquently the forces that are involved in Syria. You've, you've got hardline al-Qaeda, al-Nusra really is that, who abominates al-Baghdadi and the Islamic State forces. You've got the Syrian Free Army. You've got other people involved. And, of course, you've got some very loyal to Assad armed forces. And at the same time, you've got the Saudis backing uh, several horses in the race. You've got probably the Emirates and others doing similar things. And you've got Assad fighting against some of these forces while some of these forces are fighting against each other and amongst each other. And you got the United States bombing them all, or at least probably from time to time bombing them all, mm-hmm. but trying to bomb in an isolated way the forces of the Islamic State. Well, who are they? You know, is this guy Al-Nusra or, you know, I'm pointing my, my, my airplane. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting ready to pickle a bomb and I say, okay, am I doing it on an al- Al-Nusra fighter? Am I doing it on a, a Syrian fighter for, for Assad or am I doing it on, uh, what I want to do it on, either Al-Qaeda, uh, and Al-Nusra, and the Khorasan group, we call it, mm-hmm. and uh, the Islamic State forces. This is a complicated business. I wouldn't want to be a person dropping those bombs. On what I know, remember, I've been there, I've done that, is usually very sketchy intelligence.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, based on your you know experience, uh you know going over the intelligence for the uh, Iraq war in 2003 and then uh, and now um ju- just it, it seemed like it was just a little while ago that that the US was pulling out of Iraq and that and that that was kind of the end of that that era you know of of an Iraq war again but uh but then suddenly you know it it seems like it it ends and then starts again like like how how has this become a cycle? You know, even with different administrations, you know, different like Democrat, Republican.
2: I think that interview last night was mm-hmm. revealing in that respect, and I didn't expect it to be because here's a really fresh caught former government official, mm-hmm. and he did hew to the line from time to time, but he did reveal some things too. And one was, and I, I, I have no doubt this is partly in defense of the U.S. intelligence community, mm. but he said this was not surprising. Now, we knew that Maliki was being repressive. We knew that he was jailing and murdering Sunnis, and we knew there would be payback. And he then cited that we, we had gone in a course of three years, as I recall, from about five bombs uh, a week or so in Baghdad to over 50 So, I mean, you know, when you're having that many suicide bombers or attacks from terrorists Mm -hmm. within the Iraqi structure, you know something's going wrong, something's happening. So it wasn't any surprise that it was deteriorating in Iraq. Now, whether they were communicating that to the National Security Council and to the president, I don't know. I I really don't know. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone who knew the situation that Maliki had created in Iraq. That the Sunnis were going to get angry sooner or later. Now it might have been a surprise that they so quickly turned to what was Al Qaeda in Iraq, Al Nusra, an Islamic State, and said, "Come on back and and we'll we'll support you." That might have been a surprise and and a dangerous surprise
1: indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you think the like the American people, the average American people, even Canadian people, because uh, Canada is committed you know fighter jets to this uh to iraq you know as well
2: and i understand you have some special operating forces over there too who've
1: already there and been there yeah 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 exactly it's not stuff we always get to hear about you know sometimes it it happens you know it's already happened but uh but like what do you what do you think you know people are supposed to supposed to think about this like they've you know felt kind of the original justification for going in Iraq. And now it's like, how, how are we going to clean up what's, what's happened and, and how much responsibility should, should, you know, the Western powers like feel they have, have to kill people in that region.
2: I listened to a little of your debate before the vote, which was largely along party lines, and I thought the opposition asked some pretty good questions. I I would sort of sum it up. I would ask if I were queen for a day or whatever. (laughs) I would ask Prime Minister Harper, I would say, uh, to what purpose are you putting these Canadian forces in harm's way? And he would say probably, you know, to help the United States and NATO, you know, take care of the Islamic State forces. And I would say, no, that's not my question. To what ultimate political purpose are you putting these forces in harm's way? In other words, what's your strategic objective? And if you couldn't answer that question, I'd be worried. Uh, I think the answer to the question is a little bit of what I I said. You've got to forge a solution between Bashar al-Assad, Tehran, Ankara, ultimately the West, Mm -hmm. that puts a situation, political and otherwise, in Syria – that the parties contesting in the civil war can all see as if not a win-win situation at least a no lose no lose no lose situation and then you've got to probably grandfather aside for a while and then gradually bring in a transitional government that hopefully is a little more tolerant a little more democratic and so forth Mm -hmm. but doesn't consist of the radical jihadist elements in probably anyway And that is acceptable to to Tehran and to Ankara and ultimately to Baghdad and so forth. That's gonna take some time and some complex diplomacy and political operations. If Mr Harper can say, Well that's my goal, Mm -hmm. then you know, pat him on the back. If he can't answer that question, get worried.
1: Yeah, no. (laughs) It's it's hard to say yeah as as far as what what his justifications are besides just just helping out his friends you know well oh, that's
2: that's a good justification yeah. but it only goes so far and yeah. I, I would say it probably only goes so far with the Canadian people too
1: yeah exactly and uh what do you um uh, you talked uh, earlier today at the University of Winnipeg and um, that's where we are right now uh, still but uh you were, you were talking about um, transnational corporations and kind of uh, you went into a bit about how uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the armed forces are, you know, fighting alongside, you know, paid mercenaries from the states. Do you think um, that they have a place in this, in this fight uh, in Iraq and in Syria and that?
2: That's an interesting question because those of us in the military who've seen these, uh, seen these and worked with these private security contractors and other contractors on the battlefield mm-hmm. have a, a sort of double-edged feeling about them. One, okay, I need you to feed me and clothe me and maybe do medical support and so on and so on and maybe secure the diplomats so I don't have to, but I really, really don't like you. And I don't like you for a number of reasons. One, you get paid a lot more than I do. Two, you basically have total immunity, and I don't necessarily. And three, you look like you won't come, and here's the answer to your question, when the going gets really tough. And as a matter of fact, I would predict that most of them will desert the battlefield when it really gets bad. Um, So. I would be reluctant to introduce in a situation like we have even in Iraq, but certainly in Syria, a lot of private contractors. They'll lust for the contracts and the money, but their people won't lust for the harm's way they're going into. So this is one of the problems you have with civilians on the battlefield, and that is that they're there. They're there all right until the bombs and the grenades and the bayonets and the bullets really get
1: close, and
2: then they tend to egress from the
1: battlefield. Hmm. And but they, you know, regardless, are there and are, and are paid well to, um, you know, to protect whatever it is. You know, they're paid to protect, right? There's kind of a different, different agenda, I guess. Or it's moti- a profit agenda.
2: Right? Yeah, their motive is profit. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw this in Afghanistan and Iraq to the extent that at some time. The corruption became so bad with that motivation for profit, and the disincentive to do the kinds of things that we wanted done was so great that you actually had people operating at cross purposes. Let me just give you one example. If you're a nonprofit or you're a government organization, basically you're willing to share information, lessons learned, insights gained, whatever it might be, province to province, city to city, you're willing to share information. What's your motivation if you're profit oriented? not to share information because you want the profit. You want the contract. You don't want somebody else standing behind you bidding for that contract to get it. So you're not about to share information with them. That's a real disincentive, and it's a deadly disincentive. Profit essentially says
0: don't share.
1: All right. Thanks so much for doing this interview, Colonel.
0: Surely. Thanks for having me. Lawrence Wilkerson is a professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. He formerly served as chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast out of Winnipeg on Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Madi Nazem Roya is an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst, author of The Globalization of NATO... And a forthcoming book, The War on Libya and the Recolonization of Africa. And he is also a research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization. And he is the author of a recent article on the Western Coalition's strategy to contain ISIL. He joins us from Ottawa. Good afternoon, Madi. Good afternoon. How are you, Michael? I'm doing fine. Um, Madi, in your article, you suggest that the pattern and strength of the military mobilization being mustered in Syria presently against ISIL is not solely or even principally aimed at the Islamic State militants. Can you explain that assertion? I mean, If the main target really was ISIL, what would the coalition be doing differently? Well... I
3: think that is a very good question to start off uh, our discussion with because it gives me an opening to talk about the Syrian, predominantly uh, Kurdish-Syrian town of Kobani, or Ain al-Arab. Uh, Ain al-Arab is uh, the Arabic name, Kobani is the Kurdish name. It's it's predominantly Kurdish, but there's also Arabs living there, Turkmen, Assyrians, Armenians, so it's a multi-ethnic uh, a city in northern Syria, pr- more to the east. Uh, it's, I believe, in uh, Aleppo government, the government of Aleppo or the province of Aleppo uh, on the Turkish Syrian border directly. Um, this city is under siege right now by uh, what you call ISIL, or we can call ISIS, or we can call Daesh. In Arabic, it's Daesh. Uh, uh, whatever we'd like to call it, these anti-government, uh, these insurgents have, are attacking that city and besieging it right now. And, uh, latest reports say they've, they have a, a, a good chunk of it. Um, if the United States was serious about fighting, uh, ISIL, this would not be happening. And I, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, um, support what I say with evidence the first piece of evidence I'd like to bring to your attention is that uh, about a week ago the US Department of State the State Department was asked uh, why have there been so few airstrikes near Kobani where there's intensified fighting between the Syrian Kurds specifically uh, the people's protection units or forces uh, and ISIL why has there been basically no airstrikes there uh, the the answer that the State Department gave is very revealing, very telling. Uh, this is it's what in academia academia you'd call this uh, a revealing moment, uh, especially when you're talking about Orientalist discourse. But anyways, this revealing moment was that saving Kobani was not a strategic objective of the United States. That's what the State Department said. And then there was we refer you to the. DOD or Department of Defense, basically the Pentagon. Uh, but the answer was that uh, it's not a strategic objective. And the very same reporter, kudos to that reporter for asking these questions. Journalist told asked the spokeswoman uh, Jennifer Saki. Um, he asked her um, not only uh, about why there's been su- such little uh, bombings. He asked. Uh, why is it that ISIL is getting stronger as soon as the United States started bombing uh, Syria? And um, she didn't really have an answer for this at all, but uh, those are very important points uh, he made. The other thing I'd like to refer to is statements from actors on the ground in Syria, specifically Western Kurdistan or Syrian Kurdistan which is where Kobani is located. Syrian Kurds said that the airstrikes are doing nothing, and some of them have even said that the attack on Kobani or Ayn al has been uh, instigated, not only instigated, uh, requested by the Turkish government in Ankara. Uh, and the, the point here is very important. The Syrian Kurds, The uh, People's Protection Units, the uh, Kurdistan Democratic Union Party, which is part of the comites there, the Kurdish committees, forming the autonomous government there, they're not puppets. First of all, they don't want to break up the Syrian Arab Republic. They want a united Syria. They want autonomy for the Kurds within Syria. Uh, They refuse to play ball with this coalition of the guilty and with Turkey. They, They... They are not puppets at all. These people uh, uh, have have problems with the Syrian Kurds, okay? I want to also point out that the Kurdistan regional government says it wants independence and freedom for the Kurds, yet it's actually privatizing, uh, it's selling out Iraqi Kurdistan, you know, and it's using a nationalist discourse saying, well, we're going to break, we're going to become. have a referendum eventually and succeed from iraq and we'll have uh, our own country but in reality i mean uh, what they're going to do is turn iraqi kurdistan into a colony uh into basically fiefdoms for themselves that uh, it'll be a proxy state but these kurds in syria aren't doing that at all and that's very important and this is one of the reasons they're being besieged at the same time and this is my other point that's very important to note is the same time that ISIL is attacking these Kurds, uh, the Turkish government isn't actually negotiating with these Syrian Kurds and with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, uh, Partia Kurdistan or Kurdistani, um, the PKK, which has been, uh, labeled, uh, as a terrorist organization by the by turkey and by the united states it's actually negotiating with them and the syrian kurds for basically to get concessions to get them to join the insurgency in syria against damascus to actually uh join the ranks of the insurgency to topple the government of bashar al-assad so it's been trying to push this uh from them anyways the turks are negotiating and they're trying to gain concessions and to co-opt them and to gain surrender from them while ISIL is pushing. So this is one of the, uh, this is very important to note. The other thing I should mention while I'm talking about all this before we, we move on is that um, controlling Kobani is very important because it's it's the central uh, district in the Kurdish uh, autonomous area of Syria uh, and it's on the Turkish-Syrian border and if it's controlled, a uh, buffer zone can be established in northern syria which is what the united states and turkey want to do they're pretending they've been negotiating about this but they both want to do it and establish a no-fly zone over it because they're going to use the 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 same model as they've used in libya that model is to impose a no-fly zone over a part of the country like they did in libya in 2011 over benghazi where the anti-government forces or the insurgency can actually like uh it can organize itself and it can um uh, it can actually make formations and then attack uh, the center of power from the periphery, and that's what they want to do with this buffer zone, and to protect it and basically uh, use it for regime change. So getting rid of these independent Kurds, Syrian Kurds, is key in that. Now, moving on to fighting ISIL.
0: I was wondering uh, if you might be able to, There's another entity in your uh, article you mentioned, the M.E.K., where do they fit into this uh, puzzle around ISIL?
3: Okay, well, the M-E-K-I is the Mujahideen khalq um, They are not Syrian. They are an Iranian uh, organization. They started off as an opposition group to the Shah of Iran during the uh, uh, monarchy in Iran. After the revolution in Iran in 1979, uh, they broke ranks with... Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, and uh, eventually turned against the government in Iran, the new government, the new political establishment. Uh, They used actually many methods, including terrorism methods, and that is one of the reasons they were uh, put on the U.S. Department of State's uh, the U.S. uh, list of terrorist organizations. They've recently been delisted in uh, first in the European Union and then in uh, in, uh, in uh, the United States, but uh, this organization has uh, militants, militias, combatants in Iraq. It has mili- it has tanks, armored vehicles, and trained uh, troops in Iraq. They actually fought against Iran alongside Saddam Hussein's troops during the uh, eight-year-long Iran-Iraq War, and the United States. When it invaded Iraq in 2003 with Britain, they secured the camp and basically uh, began collaborating and controlling the MEK. In fact, it's the MEK that's uh, linked to any Israeli and American espionage in Iran. That includes making falsified documents about uh, Iranian nuclear weapons program, e. that includes killing Iranian scientists, They're involved with all this, and uh, the United States basically uh, wants to use them on reserve for any future regime change operations against Iran. They're used as a as a as a a pressure piece against Tehran, and um, that's actually one of the reasons that uh, Nouri al-Maliki, the former prime minister of Iraq, was removed from office because Iraq uh, not only did Iraq refuse to be involved. in the war and siege against Syria, not only has, did it start selling China, uh, China oil from Iraq, not only did it start buying weapons from the Russian Federation, uh, it also wanted to get rid of the MEK. It wanted to close their base, uh, Camp Ashraf, and, and uh, to have them kicked out of Iraq. And uh, the United States didn't want that to happen. And th- these were some of the reasons why uh, Nuri al-Maliki, plus the fact that he didn't let American troops stay en masse in Iraq uh, in bases through a SOFA agreement uh, uh, for U.S. troops. Um, these are the reasons why Maliki was thrown out of power.
0: Mm, so it seems as if uh, the uh, ISIL... Uh, like it, it, they, they posed a threat to this uh, Iraqi regime, and it gave uh, it gave the U.S. an opportunity to, to orchestrate regime change. And, exactly. Uh,
3: Whether you like Nouri al-Maliki and his government, which were democratically elected, despite uh, the uh, yeah. some sectarian elements within it, uh, it was democratically elected the Iraqi government still did represent different portions of society, all the strata. Uh, It had Sunnis in it, for example, the defense minister was a Sunni Arab, Uh, the foreign minister a Sunni Kurd, Uh, uh, so it wasn't this Shiite government that the U.S. makes it out to be. I mean, some of the discourse being used here is very disgenuous and very misleading. For example, Stephen Harper happens to be a Protestant. Do we say that Canada has a English Protestant government because Mr. Harper is a Protestant? Or uh, because Mr. if John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president of the United States, no one would say, well, we have a Catholic regime now, a Roman Catholic regime. But they use this discourse whenever they talk about places in Syria, these exotic places. This is Orientalist discourse that's made to
1: humiliate
3: uh dehumanize. It's made to justify foreign policy and to belittle uh, uh, these countries. And and it it actually insults the politics going on there. It's a way of saying that they don't know what they're doing, they're unfair, and they need us. uh, They need stewardship, stewardship from the United States. And this is why they say the government in Syria is an Alawite regime. Maliki's government is a Shiite regime. Uh, that's
0: not the case at all. So, it, but your your basic argument then is that this uh, the, the 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 military uh, operation being waged against ostensibly against ISIL is, in your words, a smokescreen for uh, a mobilization to encroach on Syria and ultimately Iran. Uh, so, so what what is the the goal here for for the U.S. Uh, given the larger geopolitical picture?
3: Okay. Well, we're seeing. Uh, what they're after is not only regime change, it's regional change, okay? I think it's a catchy way of putting it. Um, the, it is a smokescreen, by all measures, because they haven't been bombing any ISIL. They, the, the the bombings of ISIL have been token, all right? The, from what the news reports coming from the ground, the reliable ones, from Iraq and Syria are saying that the bombings have no effect, uh... And the bombings actually are not even bombing ISIL targets. For example, when the Americans uh, inaugurated their illegal, and I want to emphasize these are international illegal airstrikes on Syria, on the Syrian Arab Republic, the places they bombed were empty. The ISIL fighters knew ahead of time, these Daesh fighters left. So uh, they bombed empty buildings. And all the civilians there, the real victims, realized it, uh, well, they reported it, they said there's nothing here. In fact, let us let us review what the United States has bombed in the Syrian Arab Republic. It's bombed energy infrastructure, oil rigs, uh, wheat, uh, a granary, um, civilian homes. It's destroying state infrastructure, sp- civilian state infrastructure, which is a patented uh... tactic of the united states this is what it's done in iraq throughout the years this is what it did in libya in the former yugoslavia during the wars
0: and in gaza
3: in gaza the israelis are doing that exactly that's how you break down the state attack an entire society and and disorganize it they haven't bombed ISIL even before they started bombing syria in neighboring iraq uh... They were bombing empty spaces. There was reports that the bombings were token and basically a, a PR campaign. You know, the people who really pushed ISIL out in Iraq are the Iraqi people and the military fighting them. And, and the U.S. has taken a lot of credit for their for their action. I'm not saying that the Iraqi military is competent because there's a lot of incompetence in it. A lot of money was wasted on it, but a lot of volunteers joined to fight ISIL. And um, uh, it, it did manage to gain ground Okay, L- let me let me be clear about this the United States which has spent so much money on the new Iraqi army and the new Iraqi military has re- refused to deliver fighter jets that are F-16s I believe that Iraq, that Baghdad paid for in advance even when this entire incident started a few months ago al-Maliki and the Iraqi government federal government begged the United States please deliver those uh, fighter planes okay the war the jets the F16s and the United States didn't deliver them and that's why it asked the Russians and Belarus to deliver uh, Ru- the, uh, the Russian jets okay so the US it, like left Iraq in this sorry state without with what you would call a residual air force the Iraqi air force can only transport uh, and do reconnaissance work, they deliberately kept it weak. You need a in modern warfare you need you need an air force and 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 this is the state they've kept this country in and um, uh, they they are going out there is a regional agenda here. They got what they couldn't get out of Maliki. The mm-hmm. first thing was um, uh, Maliki didn't allow for the u s to maintain bases in Iraq, okay? big major bases. Uh, This had a lot to do with internal Iraqi politics. For example, the satirists refused to support his government if if he allowed the Americans to stay. So while he was forming, his government was a coalition government. This was one of the demands, and he did meet the demands by just dragging out the negotiations and eventually um, told the Americans, you can't stay, and uh, they didn't. So now they're getting they're getting those bases in Iraq that they wanted, and those bases in Iraq were basically for Iran and Syria, okay? So uh, everything about this is a smokescreen. Even the bombings against Syria, the day they bombed Syria, the Americans claimed that there was an imminent threat to the national security of the United States because a terrorist cell in Syria, linked to ISIL, was going to attack the United States, and that's why in self-defense they blatantly lied uh, and abused the United Nations Charter, because the UN Charter has a, has a, has a por- portion of an article about self-defense. If there's an imminent threat, uh, you're allowed to, uh, any con- member state of the United Nations is allowed to... Uh, Act, you know, on that basis, but they made this lie up saying there's an imminent threat, so they can, so they could use an argument under Article 51 of the UN Charter. Now, the Islamic State is not Islamic, and it's not a state, you know, no. <laughs> not a state at all, uh, and it's been blown out of proportion uh, to basically uh, justify foreign intervention by the United States specific, and its coalition of the guilty. And it's, it's also being used to demonize Muslims. In the bigger picture, I mean, a lot of people are looking at these people cutting heads, uh, raping women, uh, killing Christians and other minorities. Most of the victims have been Muslims, mind you, but still killing Christians and other minorities. They're going to look at this and they, they're going to think, is this is this what Muslims are all about when it's not? But uh, this will be used by them in the future to justify more aggression in, in the region.
0: Okay, Mahdi Nazim Roy, I think we're about the end of our time. I want to thank you very much for, for sharing those perspectives with us. Mahdi Nazim Roy is an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst based in Ottawa... <laughs> Julie Levesque is an independent journalist and associate editor of GlobalResearch.ca. She joins us now from Montreal. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Julie.
4: Hi, Michael. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Now, we've seen uh, a certain consensus uh, in the media growing about the threat posed by ISIL and the need to contain it. Briefly, what's your take on the way mainstream media are covering this issue? What questions should they be asking that they're not asking?
4: Well, actually, um, since the beginning of the unrest in Syria three years ago, uh, the mainstream media coverage, uh, the Western mainstream media coverage, has been very biased. Um, right from the beginning, we know that um, there were um, jihadists who were um, actually um, trained and armed uh, by the West and their allies in the Middle East. And I think, um, actually, this whole... Um, uh, if we remember correctly a- at the beginning of the unrest in Syria the mainstream media was saying that it was uh, protesters uh, pro-democracy protesters who were being um, crushed uh, it was dissent that was being crushed and brutally uh, crushed by the, uh, by the Syrian regime um, but in the alternative media, uh, a lot of the alternative media, most of them were saying that no, it's, it's not, it's not a, a popular uprising it's really a, a terrorist invasion and uh, now that uh, narrative has changed completely, and we're being told that, oh, well, actually, right now what's happening um, in Syria and Iraq uh, is there's this terrorist organization called ISIS, which is uh, wreaking havoc, and we need to intervene to stop them. Uh, but what happened <laughs> in between was that we were not uh, told, how ca- how can this happen? You know, this whole uh, narrative changed, and, and there was never any explanation. So right now, they're, they're holding the, the, the narrative that the alternative media was, was holding three years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually what has been happening in Syria since the beginning. You know, it's always been um, uh, terrorists that have been trained uh, by the United States and their allies, um, and which are there to, um, uh, to, to topple uh, Bashar al-Assad. And that's the goal. It's still the goal of the intervention. We're being told that uh, we're going to uh, Syria and Iraq to, to fight against against ISIS, but that's just a pretext. Uh, and even the, the the Saudi prince, I can't remember his name, but he said, "Well, uh, the ultimate goal of the fight against ISIS is to um, to remove Bashar al-Assad." So that goal, that was the goal since the beginning of the uh, of the unrest. And I'd like to um, to point out. Um, there was a French form, former French minister called Roland Dumas, who was on a French TV show. I think it was in, uh, last year in, twi- in 2013, and he said, "I was invited two years before the Arab Spring. I was invited in, in England, which you know it has nothing to do. It had not- nothing to do at the time with the um, with uh, what was it, with Syria or the Middle East or whatever. But he was asked by uh, some of his uh, friends." Um, if he would participate in a Syrian invasion, he was told, oh, we're preparing uh, the invasion of Syria. Would you like to participate? And he said, well, no, uh, I don't, don't want to participate in that. But he said, uh, and, then, and then he was asked, well, why? Why would they want to invade Syria? And he said uh, that the goal was actually to uh, remove any challenging power uh, in the region um, to favor Israel. And this whole situation in the Middle East, I think, to understand that, people have to, uh, we have to go back to the what's called the Yunnan Plan, or um, the Zionist Plan for the Middle East. That's how it's referred to by uh, several authors. Um, And this plan, the goal of this plan, is to destabilize, weaken, and fragment all the neighboring Arab countries, and to uh, make several small entities based on ethnicity and religion. Uh, for example, Iraq would be um, fragmented in three entities. Uh, there would be a Kurdish state, and then a Sunni Muslim state, and a Shia state. Um, and yeah, the goal of that plan is to, um, for Israel to, to have uh, the superiority in the region and expand its, its territory. Hmm. Uh, so I would invite your readers to go on the Global Research website and read this article called Greater Israel, the Zionist Plan for the Middle East. It's an article which was ri- uh, written by uh, Israel Shahak, uh, and that was published in 1982 uh, by the Association of uh, Arab American uh, University Graduates. R- and Oded uh, Yimhan was actually an Israeli journalist, and he was formerly attached to the uh, the Foreign Ministry of Israel. And this is what uh, Shahak says about this uh, this article: it says, to our knowledge, this document is the most explicit, detailed, and unambiguous statement to date." of the Zionist strategy in the Middle East. Furthermore, it stands as an accurate representation of the vision of the entire Middle East, of the presently ruling Zionist regime, regime which, which uh, at, the t- at the time was um, Ariel Sharon, who was uh, the head of, um, who was the, the prime minister of Israel. Um, and he says, uh, its importance lies not in its historical value, but in the nightmare which it presents and everything that's going on right now in the region uh needs to be understood needs to be viewed in the context of the of that plan so i invite your readers to uh take a look at that and there's um, an article which was uh, published in 2011 by uh Mariana de which analyzes this uh this UN plan
0: quickly any other uh, articles that you think we should uh, pay attention to
4: well there's there's four key uh quotes uh, like I mentioned, the, the Raland uh, Dumas, quote. And then there's, uh, there's also this famous quote from, uh, the U.S. General Wesley Clark, uh, which, uh, was, uh, he was, um, he was in 2007, he was on Democrat, the Democracy Now. And, um, he said that, uh, he was told by someone from the Pentagon, we're going to take out seven countries in five years. Um, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. And that was in 2007. And as we can see, you know, uh, Libya has already been been uh, taken care of. Uh, there's also this, the Seymour Hersh article, which was published in the New Yorker magazine, and um, which is called The Redirection. Um, he's quoted in uh, one of the articles by uh, Tony Cartolucci, which is called ISIS to the Rescue, America's Terrorists uh, Threaten War with Russia Amid NATO's Failure in Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, in 2007, Seymour Hirsch wrote that um, the Bush administration was uh, doing clandestine operations in the region. And a byproduct of these activities uh, has been the bolstering of Sunni extremist groups that espouse a militant vision of Islam and are hostile to America and sympathetic to al-Qaeda. So what's happening right now has everything to do with uh, what Seymour Hirsch was describing in that article. And uh, maybe one last thing, there's an article called uh, Syria, CIA, MI6, Intel Off and Sabotage, uh, which refers to a uh, CIA and MI6 uh, joint intelligence memo from 1957, and it's really impressive how it really describes wh- what is happening right now and this whole um, terrorist funding and arming and unrest happening uh, happening in Syria.
0: Julie Levesque, I'm sure those, uh, our listeners will take an interest in uh, researching those articles you mentioned. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. And we've been speaking with Julie Levesque, uh, an independent journalist and associate editor of Global Research. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email NewsHour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.